Welcome, American Nation. My name is Zane. And I have one question for you. How can we do more with more motivation? Being motivated makes you smarter, happier, and more successful. New evidence-based research suggests that the most effective way to increase that motivation is by changing your environment. What does that mean? Of course, my friends, I am, like many of you, just getting introduced to this new world of science. So my guest today is going to help us discuss it. He is the author of Motivate, How to Defeat Distraction, Ignite Interest, and Secure Success. So those are of interest to you. I highly recommend you sticking around for us to listen and talk with Adam Browse. For those of you who are just meeting Browse, he is an entrepreneur and software engineer turned educational innovator in San Francisco, California. He's also now the executive director of another nonprofit. So you can see he has successfully motivated himself to take on many different skills and accomplishments in his own life and career. Now, for longtime listeners, this is also Browse's second time on the podcast after leading Change at Work, which was a weapon of mass collaboration. It will really improve. It really improved the way that I work on teams. And I recommend that book as well, as it will help us again, be more motivated and productive in our work and careers. Having said that it is now time for motivate. Now this podcast was recorded remotely. So Browse is actually waiting for me in the zoom room. Let's go over there and see what he has to say. All right, Browse, welcome back. Hey, Thanks for having me again on this awesome podcast. Always a pleasure to uh, speak with you. So, you know, I just recorded an intro for you, and that was more for people who are new to Browse and things like that. But as you know, uh, so many mixed school students and instructors listen to the show. So I, I wanted to give uh, the people who already know Browse uh, a different look at their, their colleague and their instructor. So... Here's, here's my, my, my intro question. Yo. I know that you have a, an emoji on your website's favorite icon. Oh. Uh. You, you use emojis a lot, I'm, I'm presuming. I do. I love emojis. Yeah. Picture is worth a thousand words. Exactly. So if, just to set the vibe here, if you had to describe your life story in just three emojis, what would they be? Oh, three emojis. My life story. The entire or like my motto, my attitude towards life. Which one? You can just I'll let you run with it. Um I guess maybe I'll do like more like instead of backwards looking, like my phases of my life, instead I'll just say like what my like attitude towards life right now is. And I'd say it was like uh clappy hands, pray hands, and then maybe um uh maybe like uh the two the two like dancing girls dancing next to each other <laughs> um and that's because you know uh clappy hands just because it's like i really feel like a big part of my job and like what the world in general needs is like just people encouraging each other more and just telling people that they can do it and they should just go for it. And it's okay. Cause I think a lot of times people are very critical and very doubtful of each other. Oh, I don't know if you're going to be able to do that. Like, Oh, are you really good enough to, be able to do you know, and people are doubtful of themselves. Can I do that? Am I really okay to do that? And I just feel like we all just need to encourage each other to just go for it because that is like a better, I think a better world to live in. And then the pray hands just are the, the thanky thankful hands, because I just, 
think gratitude is like the most cool thing in the world and just realizing how much other people support you and, and, the, and the world like nature supports every day of your life, you know, through the air and the water and, you know, and just feeling grateful for everything like people in the world and your relationships and even things that happen in your life that are bad. You like, if you're lucky, you know, if you're lucky, you learn from those and then that's even something that's good. So I, I really think gratitude is a really cool and powerful thing. And then the two, the two, uh, the two dancey girls, I think is funny just cause it's just like connecting with other people and having fun and kind of trying to enjoy your life uh, with through human connection is, is so important. So, and that's what I do. You know, I, I, my, my, you know, my wife and I, you know, we make our way through the world together uh, and I, and I know other people uh, find valuable, you know, partners in their lives or, or, or families that they either they have they're born into or deliberate families that people form out of people they meet in the world. Mm. I think that's so cool and so important and, and people can just should just go for that and and kind of do what it takes to be vulnerable and connect with other people and enjoy their lives right on right on that was, that was uplifting so Woo! let's talk it's like about it's like eat pray love but in three emojis it's like uh <laughs> Go ahead. Sorry. I'm sorry. I'm interrupting you. I have ADHD. ADHD people often interrupt. That's like one of the symptoms of ADHD, it turns out. So for sure. I, I appreciate you being upfront with us here. But for, for reals, I, I want to kind of let's unpeel the layers behind the book itself, uh, motivate how to defeat distraction, uh, ignite interest and secure success. Uh, let's That's see. right. That was Yes, the carrot and the stick. Yeah, the carrots and sticks, which is what it sort of, you know, it starts off kind of, you know, carrots and sticks was the beginning of motivational psychology and science with the behavioralists. Um, you know, they were initially focused more on what's called positive and negative reinforcement. Do something good, get a piece of candy, do something bad, you know, get scolded or, or smacked with a stick or whatever. Um, but obviously the book isn't actually about, <laughs> it, it, it very rapidly in the first chapter goes beyond that and says that that, even though, you, you know, you do, you, there are some edges to, to, to their rules, you know, you how to do things and there's, there's consequences, which are kind of extrinsic sometimes, you know, carrots and sticks, rewards and punishments, but that is not the whole of motivation at all. That's just the very, very tip of the iceberg. So yeah, then the whole rest of the book is about much more sophisticated forms of motivation. Right, right. Tell me about that. So, you know, you have obviously motivated yourself to take on a lot of different skills and, and accomplish a lot of different things in your career. Yeah. You were an engineer, you've been an entrepreneur, and now with, with your writing career. So what made you, how did you motivate yourself to write this book? That's a very good question. I think it does. I mentioned that I have ADHD and I, and I, and I'm not diagnosed by like a psychiatrist or anything, but I've read a few books. It's actually in this, for this book, I had to study ADHD because I was like, Hey, distraction, I should learn about ADHD and ADD. So I read a few books about it. And while I was reading, I was like, Oh my God, I definitely have ADHD. And it was actually kind of a big revelation for me this year or last year was to learn that. And, uh, but anyways, a big part of ADHD is motivation. Motivation is a something that people with ADHD struggle with. Um, not necessarily the motivation to start things because you kind of get excited and you get like kind of, you go and kind of focus on it for a little bit, but then it's hard for people with ADHD to finish things or to like keep at things. 
uh, and that can be a strength and a weakness in some ways, you know, cause you go, you know, you kind of go broad, maybe you know, other people may go deeper. Um, so it's not a terrible thing, but it can be a struggle. If you have a goal to finish something and then you have this compulsion to constantly move on to other things, you feel bad that you weren't, you weren't able to go finish the thing that you wanted to finish. So I had to develop strategies that work for me and, and maybe work for everyone or maybe work for the majority of people. But what I did was I just, I just set a schedule Saturday morning. Saturday morning from like 10 or 9 or 10 a.m. to about 1 p.m., I would just sit and write. And I usually go to a cafe because then I'm, I have no distractions. I just sit at the cafe. I have nothing but my computer. And I would just write. Um, and that, that really helped a lot. Also, the tools. So I used reedsy.com, R-E-E-D, reedsy.com. And reedsy.com is an awesome place to write books. It's just like, it's literally the best book writer editor thing I've ever used. And I've been in touch. They're kind of a startup. I've been in touch with their engineers, giving them feedback. They take my feedback. They like actually make, they push to production, like fixes for things that I've asked them to do. Like now when you hit command S while you're in the editor, it saves. Whereas it used to, you hit command S and it would say, Oh, does your browser want to save this web page? You know, like, you know, you don't want it to save a web page. You want it to save your document. So I told them that and they like three weeks later, it was there. So that was pretty cool. Reedsy is a really cool company. I've also used their, their editors, which is how they make money is you hire editors through their platform. So, yeah, I would say, you know, your schedule, um, my schedule is the way that I do it. I mean, this gets back to the book actually in a way. So the, the real premise of the book is that your motivation and, and your motivation to learn and then what that, which, which is then causes your academic success um, is not primarily a matter of your character mm. or of your, and definitely not of your genes, of your, of your proclivities innately. It is far, far, far more important what your environment is. Your environment, uh, I would go so far as to say, is your environment determines what your level of motivation is going to be. And, and if you're going to, and if you point at someone, people who are in like, quote unquote, bad environments, who still are motivated, I would say that even if you say, oh, they have a bad environment because, you know, maybe they're poor, they don't have any resources, or they're in a school that's bad, or they have, you know, I would say that if you drill into those people's actual day-to-day -day lives, you'll find that they've carved out spaces inside of that overwhelm overall bad environment they've carved out spaces where they can still have an environment that supports their motivation and so um, obviously it's better if just the macro environment is actually geared to support everyone's motivation but i think in every case uh, i never i, I just it, especially the research uh, that i've read it just seems like environment trumps character every time and, that, and that's a really big difference, uh, I think, for people, for the way people judge other people and the way they judge themselves. Because um, I think a lot of times people go back to character. It's called character bias. There's a bias in human nature, which is to, to believe that it's people's character that is the cause of situations when actually it's always almost, it's, it's far more often it's the circumstances, not the character. Uh, people do it in crime all the time. Oh, they're a criminal. They're bad. They did the crime because they're a criminal because they're bad, but almost every crime is situational. You know, well, I, I was hanging with my friends and then one of my friends got this crazy idea to like throw a rock at somebody's house. 
So then the window broke. So we all went in and we're looking around and we took some stuff. You know what I mean? Like it becomes very, yeah. crime is very situational. But then when they get on the stand and people are reviewing it, they're like, this is a criminal. They did it because they are a criminal person. Like it goes back to character. Anyways, so the same thing happens for like intelligence or academic behavior or performance, you know. Uh, oh, they're a really good software engineer because they're really smart or they were just built to be a good engineer. Their brain just works that way. That's just all character bias. People become good engineers because they had an environment that supported them and that encouraged them to work on software or whatever it is that they got good at. It sounds like a really good segue into one of the other questions I have for you, which is, the common pitfalls that people fall into when trying to motivate themselves. Mm. It seems like yeah. a really good book for students. And uh, one of now one of the care one of the pitfalls I heard was character bias, right? So yeah, people will say, "Oh, I haven't. I'm I'm just not good at studying." Or I, for example, I've been leading a student resource group for the past year about uh, a lot of the same stuff like productivity, planning, work. A lot of times the the uh, things that I hear students say is like, I'm just in a rut right now. I just can't mm. get myself to, you know, yep. eat the frog or get myself to do that thing that's hard. Yeah. Yeah. I'm wondering, can you speak? Yeah. To what are the main pitfalls for people? Yeah. I mean, I mean, the book definitely will give you kind of ways to think about, uh, you know, your own personal motivation. The actual point of the book is actually for designers of environments parents, schools, teachers, you know, principals to change the way schools and homes and even workplaces. I mean, there's a lot of learning that happens in companies now, especially since companies are much more knowledge focused mm. and creative focused now, but it's really about how to design those environments. So I would say, you know, you know, the same exact research could be applied to the way that we really can design our own environments. So I would always urge people to, if you can't do something, because you're like, ah, I just can't seem to get to that. And, and I think the natural inclination is to like white knuckle, try really hard. And, and, and then when you don't succeed, you kind of feel bad or you kind of blame yourself. I think that's really like a bad, a bad way to do it. Instead, don't grab so hard. Don't like white knuckle it. And instead step back and say, how could I change my environment so that it was like inevitable? that I did what I wanted to do. I'll give you a simple example. You know, I sometimes have a hard time getting to the gym. Totally normal. The gym is painful. <laughs> I'd rather sit on the couch, you know, like whatever, but I want the benefits of going to the gym. So one thing that I'll do is the day that I'm going to go to the gym, I'll get up and I won't, I'll just put my gym clothes on. And then I have my gym clothes on all day. If I'm going to go to the gym at two o'clock, maybe I'll put a shirt on over the top. So zoom people can't see that I'm wearing shorts or something. But, but I, but I'll be wearing my, my gym clothes. Well, when two, two o'clock rolls around, I'm ready to go. I got my, I already got my gym clothes on. You know what I mean? So there, so there's a way where you can think about, and that's just a simple thing, but you can think about how you can change your environment to then seg the things you want to do. Just like I said, I wanted to write. So I would say Saturday morning, I would go to the cafe I mean, during COVID, I couldn't do that, which was a struggle. It was harder to write because I had to stay at home. But now that the cafe is reopened, I've restarted that. I go to the cafe every Saturday. And, you know, that's like getting out of the house, getting away from distractions. I get to eat a breakfast sandwich, which I like. I like breakfast sandwiches. So that's like, ooh, I get a little carrot, you know, my little reward. 
uh, and I get to sit in right for a few hours. And then when I get tired or exhausted, I just stop, you know, there's no pressure to keep going. And then during the rest of the week, I don't beat myself up that I'm not writing. I'm like, no, I write on Saturday. It's fine. You know? So by building your environment, uh, to help your motivation, you will have far more success than if you try to sort of do things by, by like your willpower. Don't, don't use your willpower to try to do things. Instead, build your environment so that there is no willpower necessary. You just slide right into whatever you need to do. That's like why having a dedicated workspace is so critical mm. because when you have a dedicated workspace, you're literally building your environment so that if you go and sit in that environment, you are geared to work. You have everything you need. You know, you have pens and pencils and scissors and a stapler and a computer and, a, you know, a cup of water and, you know, everything you need to work. I mean, I don't know if you need a stapler and scissors anymore, but I have that occasionally. But yeah, so dedicated workspace, um, doing things like, you know, setting yourself up like gym clothes on. Um, even just getting up and wearing professional clothing. You know, like, I think it's easy, especially during COVID, you just wear like sweatpants or you keep your pajamas on and, or you work in bed. People like open their computer in bed and keep working like very bad. That's an environmental, you're just blowing a hole in your motivation by not doing some simple things that don't take a lot of work, which is like putting on regular clothes, taking a shower, sitting down in a dedicated workspace. You're going to be a million times more uh, motivated if you do those little steps to change your environment. That is awesome. Awesome. I'm, so now that you, so now we, we know that it's, it's really about reducing friction, right? Reducing the barriers yeah. to, you know, all these distractions coming. Um, we're going to zero in, uh, have yeah. all the things. That is part of it. There's more to it, but well, that's definitely a, that's a, that's the, that's the beginning level. Yeah. The beginning level. There's an advanced black belt level too. Ooh. But we can talk. I don't know. I don't want to interrupt your question. Though. What's your rest? I was going to move to, you know, you mentioned like there's, this is for designers of environments. So uh, the, the thing I was, I was wondering about was have any of your, your techniques that you found of, have they been implemented in make school or, or like, Oh yeah. yeah. Certain case I, I mean, of sure. I mean, I, I basically, I mean, I mean, the there's a few chapters where I talk directly about make school and I say like, this is what we did in make school to make students more motivated. <laughs> um, the last section of the book, the whole last like third of the book is about how to take traditionally sort of school like environmental sort of factors and change them to be highly motivational. So for example, one chapter is on grading. And it's like grading, how do you grade to build motivation? That's literally whatever, chapter 22. And uh, it's quite interesting. Traditional grades are extremely demotivating for most people who receive them. Mm. Uh, it's kind of hard to explain exactly why, but they, I mean, I think if just, if, you, if you've received a grade recently, you know that when you get a C grade, you don't feel good at all. You feel like crap. You feel like less motivated to do better, right? But when you get an A grade, you feel like this is great and you feel really motivated to keep going and go hard and even go harder. So it's very weird because grading that, that just that, just that, that experience that everyone knows and has, I mean, if you've received an, a C grade, you know it, or an A grade, you know it, mm -hmm. but just that experience shows that grading does something really, really bad for schools, which is that it demotivates the least prepared students 
and it motivates the most prepared students, which is the opposite of equity, right? That's, that's strapping rocket boots onto the advanced students and putting a backpack full of bricks on the less prepared students. And so you get this kind of stretching, elastic stretching where, where, where the advanced people blast out in front because they were advanced to begin with. And the people who are less advanced to begin with drag and, and have struggled to, to, to move as fast and accelerate as fast. And so you get these wide, 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 wide differences in academic um, achievement. You know? Um, you know, you get the person who got a PhD from MIT and straight A's, and then you got the person who like dropped out of high school. Like, why do we have in one society that big of differences in outcomes, in academic outcomes? Well, I would argue that there are not just grading, but a number of systems that are universal in traditional schooling and, and even in a lot of alternative schooling that, that actually contribute to cultivating the motivation of the people who are the most advanced at the beginning of an educational process and actually are a drag on the motivation of people who are less prepared. Um, and if you wanna build a school system or an educational system or a school, an individual school, or even for your own self, if you wanna build yourself into someone who is unbridledly moving forward, uh, then you have to, you have to change those, those systems. Grading is one of them. You have to change the way you do grading. Um, it's not as bad as it sounds. I mean, you don't have to just get rid of grades. You can do grades properly. Um, and there's a whole way that I say in the book how to do it. Um, but you can still give out grades. You know, the grades just have to mean something else. Mm -hmm. um, um, and you can do that pretty, pretty straightforwardly. Um, um, but yeah, so there's a lot of parts of schools that need to change. And we, thankfully, because Make School is really independent and innovative and, and and for a long time we weren't even accredited like trying to get any kind of accreditation or anything so we could just do anything we wanted well we followed the research and we did what 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 really motivates people more uh one thing for example is what's called peer peer assisted learning pals peer assisted learning and that's just like you all know if you're in a make school class and the teacher said or the instructor says okay everybody like uh, you know, we're going to read this article together and then everyone's going to break into groups of three or four and answer these four questions. That's called peer assisted learning. And it turns out it's way more motivating and way more successful than lecture, right? The, 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 the instructor could just say, well, you guys all read this article. Now I'm going to talk about it for 25 minutes to you. Well, it turns out that's way worse uh, for motivation and for, for achievement. So that's an example. Peer assisted learning is like, Totally at make school, that's like what we do all the time, peer assisted learning. So yeah, so this this book is really like basically just explains make school. If you read it, especially the last uh, section, it just explains exactly why we, you know, at least the contributions that I made to make school are largely in, in you know, this is really just like an explanation of how to do that. There are a few things that I realized afterwards are not in the book that I we do do at make school, like coaching. We do coaching at make school, and I don't have that in this book but I really should have it in the book. I think I'll have to write an, a second edition with a few extra chapters. One about motivational interviewing, which is essentially how coaching at Make School works. So the book is Browse's playbook for- Yeah. Yeah, it's great. Yeah, I hope someday we, got, we see one of yours about podcasting, Zane. I'll have to say, what are the, tip, what are the, what are the secrets? <laughs> that would be- all right, so 
Next, next section of my, my question is centered around uh, learning, right? Because uh, so much of motivation is getting yourself to put, take on new skills. When I was uh, researching for your book for this podcast, I came across uh, Grit by Angela Dutwork. Mm-hmm. And so I have a quote from her, which I, I would love to just hear your reflection on it. The only skill that we are born with, she says, is knowing how to learn. So when you hear that quote, Bruce, what does it mean to you? Uh, yeah, I think that's right. I mean, I think she's expressing a kind of um, a kind of um, Montessori. I think Montessori really pioneered this idea that, um, and then it was it was taken up by what are called free schooling advocates. You know, uh, throughout throughout the last hundred years, um, Montessori was like the twenties, so that's like a hundred years ago now. But yeah, so since basically Montessori um, basically came up with this idea, the idea is that if left to our natural devices, we are curious learning beings, which is pretty easy to prove, actually. But for a long time, up until Montessori, really, people thought that a lot of people were drudges. You know, they really thought that most people were just kind of drudges, who just kind of like, like did what like whatever was kind of in their face you they would just do and they weren't really have they weren't really thinking very much and they weren't really learning that much Hmm. um which was very classist and very almost feudal sort of a feudal system where people think some people are sort of drudges and other people are sort of better um turns out that pretty much everybody is about the same which is everybody is a kind of curious naturally curious learning creature um so yeah i think that's i Absolutely. I mean, I don't even just believe that as an article of faith. I think you could very easily prove that scientifically. I think it's like very clear uh, to anyone looking objectively at, at humanity uh, that there are very few drudges. I mean, there might be some people who literally have mental you know, handicaps who might not be able to really fly very high intellectually, but that's a very small number of people. That's like a, that's like a, you know, like that's like a group of people who literally have like maybe like you could call like a medical problem. But if you just take like a person who's healthy, they're going to be curious, learn, you know, they're going to be this bubbling energy of curiosity and, and learning. That's going to be the natural state of, of human beings. That's awesome. That is, that is, I, I was a TA this past year, so I definitely attest to like everyone, like when you see the people's eyes light up when you like finally help them solve a bug or things like that, like everyone yeah. has that curiosity. Yeah. I mean, all you have to do is interact with cats, actually. You know, cats are, are very curious and they're very, you know, they, they, they get into things, they can solve puzzles, you know, and human beings are, are like that, but like times of, you know, 50,000, you know, right. And every human being's brain is 99.9999999% exactly the same as every other human being's brain. So there's really no way for people to not be everyone, you know, curious and learning and, and creative. Well, I do talk about Angela Duckworth in the, in the book, actually, and I disagree with her. I, it's actually a big part of the book is to disagree, not with this premise. I agree with this part. Um, but she has a book that's called Grit, mm-hmm. which is her, it's kind of her treatise on motivation. But she says that motivation or the important kind of aspect of motivation is, is grit, which she calls the union of passion and perseverance. But it, it unfortunately gets kind of reduced down in, in hers as well as in kind of societies. It gets boiled down to just re- delayed gratification. Oh. 
oh. a kind of puritanical or, or, or Confucian kind of idea of, you know, the good, a good person is sort of has a stiff upper lip and kind of puts up with things that are hard and can kind of go through hard things in order to get rewards and kind of, anyways, I definitely disagree with that framing. And, and I show the research to try to argue that that's actually the wrong way to think about it. Um, and instead of grit, I offer grout. Grout, like the, what you put in tiles, you know, between tiles to keep tiles in place, you put this sand and water that's called grout and it holds tiles together. Um, so I say instead of grit, which is delayed gratification and, and sort of self-abnegation, instead I say grout, which means a supportive environment. So people will have grit when they have grout. They'll be able to endure difficult things and achieve more only if they are given a supportive environment or they somehow, like I said, carve out their own sort of supportive environment in, in a more difficult environment. So yeah, I say I say grit is not so good, but instead we should think more about grout and supporting each other and creating environments that support people. That's awesome. Yeah, no, when, when you mention, like, when you say it that way, it sounds like like grit kind of can go back to like just character bias. Yep, exactly. It also goes back to uh, like a religious bias, I think. You know, if you look at Confucian, I don't know so much about Confucianism, but it seems it seems to be somewhat rooted in that. And then also, I know a lot about Puritanism and about Protestantism. And certainly in the Protestant uh, sort of worldview, there's this idea that if you suffer and you work hard, then good things will come. And if you get something without suffering or working hard, it's kind of not good, or you should be like wary of that. You know, like things that are easily won should be sort of suspect. Um, and, th and that's just, you know, that's just an accident of history that just a ton of people believe that um, as a kind of rule of thumb. But if you actually look at the research, uh, it suggests that actually, uh, people who are really successful, it was actually pretty easy for them to be successful because they had a lot of support. And people who are lack success, actually, it was really hard for them to fail. <laughs> like even, you know what I mean? Like we want to think, oh, people who are successful work harder. But actually, that doesn't seem to be true. It seems to be that people who succeed a lot had the most help. And people who are less successful actually had the hardest time. So actually, we have a complete inver inverse idea of, of meritocracy. And the reality is it's the easiest to succeed the most and it's the hardest to, to be the least successful, which is totally backwards from what you know the common sort of thought is, which is like, if you work hard, you'll go far. And it's true, you have to kind of show up and you have to kind of you know be motivated to do the work, but you're largely motivated because your environment. So you have to have that environment set up. I see. Yeah. But I tried to get Angela Duckworth to read my book. My friend is friends with her. And I was like, dude, just send her my book. Like, maybe she'll read it. You know, no, she didn't have time. She's too busy. She's like famous, you know. Sure. <laughs> Which someday I hope to talk to her about it. I mean, we do have that connection through my friend. And, and we both wrote a book about motivation, you know. So I feel like we, we could talk. But she's in another sphere, you know. She's like a famous person who's like a whatever tenured professor at some fancy college and and th those people, if they, if they can, they, they'll avoid actually, you know, engaging with, uh, you know, someone who's not of their, their status level, you know, Yeah, I think. For sure. So 
we're going to move down one layer into this onion. And I wanted to talk about, so you mentioned more about like designing environments. So if it isn't like character and if it isn't about like necessarily not being curious, like everyone's curious and everyone, uh, and that's also supported, what are the real differences? Like say you, say, I know you've, you know, you've been the instructor of a, of a class, you've designed a mixed school uh, from the ground up, you've been on teams of people and, and led businesses. If you like are leading a team or a group of people, how do you go about like finding out how to motivate different kinds of people. You know what I mean? Oh, that's a great question. Yeah, that's a really good question. Um, well, there are certain things that are standard that are just gonna be across human beings. Um, and I try to encompass that in, in this book. I talk about it from the very beginning. It's what I call the ladder of motivation. And this is just something I, I, like, I needed to encapsulate what I was figuring out as I did all this research. And I, the best way I thought to do it was this ladder of motivation. So the ladder of motivation has uh, four levels uh, and most people in like a job are going to, they're not going to, they're not going to need to like really work on the bottom rungs, hopefully, but the top rungs are going to be kind of what we focus on more. But in schools, you have to think about the whole thing because you might even have students who uh, don't have the bottom rungs um, in place. So the bottom rungs are physical needs. The next rung is emotional. So physical needs are like physical safety, food, clothing, shelter emotional needs, which is like emotional safety, predictability, companionship. So when you, have, when you don't have your physical needs met, you're most motivated to meet your physical needs. Once you have your physical needs met, you're most motivated to have your emotional needs met. And you won't care about higher order of things until you have those emotional needs met. That's why people who like get depressed quit their jobs, right? Because they're depressed. They have emotional needs that aren't being met. So they can't focus on higher, you know, more kind of abstract things. The next level is once you have your emotional needs met, you're met, met you're going to be motivated to get self-determination. So that's autonomy and then increasing mastery. So you're going to want to be free and you're going to want to be learning and growing once you have those physical and emotional needs met. Once you have self-determination needs met, once you feel like, yeah, I'm growing a lot and I'm very free, then you go into the kind of the highest rung, which is what I call social meaning. And that's purpose, aspirations, connectedness, and esteem. So gaining status and gaining esteem of your, of, you know, history or of your colleagues or of, you know, community. And so, yeah, I mean, that, that, I think of that as an inverted kind of pyramid, because actually the social meaning is, there's so many ways to gain social meaning, but there's actually so only a few ways to get your physical needs met. You know, you just need like a roof and clothes and food, boom, you know, you're done. Uh, so that's easy. It's kind of narrow, but social meaning is very broad. So that's why when you ask the question, how do you motivate like a team of people in a company? It's all in that, the top two levels. So you have to give them autonomy and you have to give them increase, increasing mastery. Okay. Because if you cut those out, if you're like, hey, I'm micromanaging you and you're not learning anything, all the most talented people are going to leave unless they're being paid a ton of money. Then they're just going to stay because they don't give a shit. They just want the money, which is even worse in a way, you know. Um, but once, so, so yeah, so I would just say those two top levels are the most important things. You know, when you're trying to build a team at a company, you can't really go and help people necessarily with their emotional needs. That's kind of their personal life. And, and I mean, from a professional perspective, I mean, Dan would disagree. Dan might say, yeah, let's do this, you know, but I kind of think, you know, that's kind of like crosses a line for me. I feel like, 
I feel like you can be welcoming of their personal life in the workplace and you can be accepting of them, whoever they are in their personal life. But, but I feel like you don't want your manager to be like, how's your relationship with your dad? <laughs> you know, like that's weird. Yeah. You know, uh, they need, you know, they need other help with that. But what you can do in the workplace is self-determination and social meaning, those top two levels. Um, so yeah, autonomy, mastery, make sure people get to own things. Own, ownership is really critical. So don't assign people work to do. Instead, give them ownership goal and then give them resources to achieve that goal. If you flip it around like that, then people will be way more motivated to actually do the work. Then if you say you're assigned to do this and you have to do it this way, that's going to lock in uh, and people are going to not be super happy. Um, and then social meaning, I mean, that's really the biggest kind of most creative level. You know, how do you create social meaning? Well, I think a big part is to just understand why people are there. So rather than say, I know while you're all here, you're all here because of the five company values, which are honesty, integrity, diversity, you know, like that's a little bit like, okay, cool. You think you know everything, but what if you actually asked people, why do you work here? What do you think is great about our product for the world? And like, why do you get up in the morning and work on it? Right. And, and what you'll find is people say things that maybe you don't expect. So I think it's important to always be asking the people you're with why they're there. And then just tell people why everybody's there. I mean, in a way, it's so simple. Like you don't have to think, you don't have to do anything except for kind of hold a mirror up to people and say, this is why we're all here. You know, I've talked to you all and this is why we're here. We're here because whatever it is, you know, um, I mean, if you're in a healthcare company, maybe people are like, they're there because they care about health or they care about, you know, or if you're in a nonprofit and there's some mission that the nonprofit does, maybe it's like, Maybe, maybe that mission motivates people, but you'll also find weird things like, hey, actually, a lot of people are here, like in the military. A lot of people are in the military because their family's in the military. Mm. That's interesting, right? It's yeah. not because of necessarily patriotism. I mean, yeah, they'll say patriotism too, but a lot of people are there because their family's in their military. If you got up in front of a battalion of soldiers and you said, oh, you all care about America and you all care about patriotism, they'd all be like, yeah, 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 yeah. But if you got up and said, you know, we're here because we're part of a family tradition of, of defense and loyalty and authority. And people would be like, whoa, this is, yeah, this is great. You know what I mean? Because you really hit and showed them the mirror of their own values. Anyways, that's just one way to do it. There's a million ways to, to create social value and help people participate in social value and co-create social value. You can't just give them social value. They have to be participants in the creation of social value in order to be motivated. Mm -hmm. yeah it's so interesting when, when you bring that up because it, it it immediately made me think of the community covenant at make school sure like just decides like we're all going to be yeah. honest we're all going to be like yeah. to each other yeah and it's not, it's not like danny got up and said okay here's what here's the rules right right we intentionally i mean dan and i intentionally said when we designed the retreat we said the students have to get together and they have to decide what the community covenant is because that's them creating social meaning, which will make them then take ownership and be more motivated to engage and, and contribute to the community. Yeah. Nothing at make school is done by accident. We, we really deliberate and think about it really carefully. 
I'm going back the curtain on me school and, and talking to the yeah right. yeah let's pull back the curtain I think what would be so cool is if make school students realized yeah this is all by design learned what the principles of those design are and when you get into companies and you get into leadership positions use those same principles to make amazing teams to make amazing companies I think that would be so cool and I know Dan would too Dan would just love it that's awesome yeah let's see so closing in on the the part of the episode where I, I I tend to ask like a lot of miscellaneous questions but I have one more point here so as you know I just finished up my job search I have this internship coming up at PTC Ooh, congratulations uh, yes thank you so but a lot of job descriptions today have self-motivated on their like we're looking mm-hmm. for someone who's self-motivated uh, doesn't need a lot of oversight <laughs> Now that yeah. having said all that we've said today, do you do you think that's a good uh, trait for those to put on a job description, or is there a better way to phrase that? Yeah, I mean, job descriptions leave a lot to be desired. Um, yeah, I don't. I don't really. That's a good question. That's a really good question. Um, I mean, I think, I think what they mean is, um, uh, I think a more accurate way to say that, which they probably wouldn't say, I wouldn't recommend they change the language because I think that's fine kind of the way it is. But I think what it really means is we want people with what's called high executive functioning, mm. executive functioning. And that's kind of what they mean. They mean like, you know, you set goals without anyone prompting you, you set goals and then work towards those goals without someone like dogging on you and constantly telling you to like do more and do this. What are your goals for next week? And like, how do you need to do, you know, like, you know, they want someone who has high executive functioning. I think that's what that really means. I mean, when I, if I were to read that a job interview or if I were to write a job rec and I put that in there, that's kind of what I would mean. Um, so, but what does it really mean to be self-motivated? I mean, you can't, I mean, the company still needs to do the work of leadership. They still need to do the work of management. And that work of leadership and management is motivation. I mean, that's, that's, that's the whole, the whole job. So, I mean, you can't just say you guys motivate yourselves. <laughs> that's super weird, you know? Um, but you do want people who have high executive functioning, who sit there and say kind of compulsively without, without having to prompt them, they think, huh, what are my goals for this week? Oh yeah, how can we do better there? Oh yeah, what's the like, how is that working? Oh, I'll go call, you know, I'll go call Allie and like ask her, what is it? Like, how is their department working? And can we make that better? You know, without asking my manager, can I do this? Should I do this? My manager telling me, hey, can you please call Allie and make sure that that department's doing well? You know, like that's, I think what they mean is that you show initiative and that you're, you know, that you're moving on your own. Because the worst thing in the world is somebody who won't do work unless someone else is sitting next to them looking over their shoulder. That's the worst. I've done that. I've been on teams so many times where people are like that. And I can't necessarily fire those people, but that's who that's what I would do. I would just say, you're gone. There's no reason to have a, a worker who can only work when someone else is there looking over their shoulder. That's crazy, you know? Um, so yeah. I see. Yeah. But I could, I could also criticize leadership in our, in general, in our country 
and in companies and everywhere, neighborhoods. I, I mean, I think our country has a complete crisis in leadership, total, top to bottom at every tranche. I, I, I think maybe with the exception of mayors, I think mayors are probably one of the only parts of our civilization right now that actually has good leadership. Um, I generally am pretty pleased with mayors, not whether I love their politics one way or the other, but they seem to be demonstrating leadership. They seem to be organizing things and expressing values and, you know, making progress in terms of, you know, and they're doing it. I feel like it's like they're doing it. I think a lot of business leaders are largely just kind of pushed up by the hard work of the people underneath them. Mm-hmm. And I don't really see them as adding much value at all um, in terms of leadership. Um um, buffeted about by circumstance and by their by the work of their employees. Actually, the leadership of people who aren't in leadership positions is probably the most what society is really running on. Anyways, so I, that's kind of my and I'm not the only person who believes that. I'm not like some crazy person like President Obama, who who I think actually does exhibit a lot of leadership. I mean, for all his flaws, you know, I think does exhibit leadership. His presidential library, because every president creates a presidential library after they become president his presidential library is not just like the reagan library is like you know it's like a museum to america and like it has the books in it it's like a library obama's presidential library is a leadership academy where it it finds awesome leaders and brings them to chicago and puts them through like a school where they become better leaders because obama like me i mean he frames it much more positively oh we got a big better leaders I'm saying it a little bit more negatively. We have terrible leadership in the country and we need to do that better. Uh, so I'm not the only person who believes that. I, I would argue that, that Obama through his actions demonstrates that he also believes that leadership is really at, a, at an adhere in our country. And uh, so, yeah, so when, so when a job Rex says self-motivated, you wonder if that means like, well, we're not very good at like leading you or motivating you. So you better just handle that on your own. <laughs> Because we're shit at it, you know, uh, or we're not very good at it. So, but how do you make better leaders? Well, I, I think part of it is learning how motivation works, learning how people work, and then creating more motivation and creating that social meaning and helping people create social meaning among each other. That's leadership, in my opinion. And so, uh, and so, yeah, I, I hope, especially make school students see how to do this. And when they get into environments that they start, you know, creating these same kind of motivational environments which then will create better more leadership better leadership mm-hmm. okay so we we're talking about make school a lot here and i, I want to ask like one area of leadership that i i personally I'm, I'm confused about and like i'm sure maybe a lot of others will be have you ever as a leader how do you motivate uh, people to take an action or to lead people in a direction where like you know they're not going to want to go through yeah I'll well, there's context yeah. here because like, yeah, sure, great. I was reading your last book uh, in preparation for this, and you know, you you speak about like when you first came to May School, and you know, it was 2017. People were in uproar. Uh, it wasn't as I think your book said it was one student described it as like a, a dumpster fire. <laughs> so I mean, yeah. <laughs> speak to me about like the hard times as a, as like oh, when yeah. it comes to leadership or like motivating. Yeah. You others yeah well you know in some ways that when things are really bad actually it's i think it's in some ways can be easier to lead because people want things to get better 
you know, they don't have the fires to be put out. So in some ways people are more, more compliant, more ready to try to do things, you know, new ideas. Um, and at that point you can just say, Hey, let's do this. And people will say, okay, although that's not actually the right thing to do. So you want to always, I, in my opinion, and, and it's in the, my previous book, the leading change at work. Um, but in some ways I think it's in the motivate as well. Um, cause I think they're related, um, a lot. I mean, obviously I wrote both of them within two years. So, I mean, they're very related. <laughs> actually, I had, I had this book almost two thirds written. I stopped writing this book. I wrote that whole book and then I switched gears back and finished this book. So it was like in the middle, I wrote the other one, but so there are, there are a lot very related, but I, I would say, I would say it's always the same. You always want to focus on autonomy and mastery. You always want to, and you, they have to have their physical and emotional people's physical and emotional needs met. And then you want to focus on autonomy and mastery. And then you want to focus on social meaning, creating, participating in social meaning. You have to go in that direction and, and you have to go in that flow. So if you come in and just say, we're doing this, you know, this is what we're doing. Uh, people are just going to, some of them are going to be like, I don't want to just do whatever some guy says, you know, somebody says, right. Um, so it always, I think, has to be this kind of participatory thing, which may sound like, oh, this is going to take forever or like, oh, we're going to compromise so much. We're not going to do the best thing. But I, I don't think it works out that way. If you, if you do it right, especially if you don't have big meetings, don't have big meetings, one-on-one -on -one conversations, brief one-on-one -on -one conversations with a lot of people, you can build a total consensus. You can build a total tapestry of consensus. And then when you have a big meeting, all you're doing is celebrating. You're all just celebrating. Hey, we already built the consensus. Now we're all just here to celebrate, right? That's the way to have big meetings. You already did all the hard work. And now you're just like, we all agree. <laughs> this is going to be great. You know, cheers. Um, so yeah, I would say, I would say don't lead from the, here, let me, maybe I'll put it this way. This is, and this is not me originally. This is from Long Walk to Freedom, which is the, the autobiography of, of Nelson Mandela. So Nelson Mandela was, and it's a great book, but it's about a thousand pages. So buckle in, it's a long book. Although you can skip the middle, the middle, like the whole second half, he's just in Robben Island, just languishing on this, in this prison. You can just skip the whole thing. I tell you, nothing happens. He just languishes the whole time in prison. I don't know why he wrote 400 pages about that. Anyways, um, what he says in the beginning is really good. I mean, the whole thing is great, but in the beginning, he says something that really stuck with me, which is he was a king picker. That was his inherited tribal role. He was born in a village in Southern Africa. He was part of the Koza tribe. They have a click. I don't know how to do it exactly, but it's Koza, X-H. Right. Anyways, part of that tribe was the way they got new kings was another group of people who were called king pickers would essentially elect the king, the chief, you know, the chieftain. Mm -hmm. And so he was born into the king pickers. So he was trained to be a king picker. And what king pickers were, were really good at leadership and really good at identifying leaders because their whole job was to pick the next leader. And so he had this inherited kind of uh, uh, knowledge and wisdom from, from his generations of king pickers. And one of the things that I'm sure is just one of, I'm sure a whole bunch of wisdom that that, that group of people had about leadership was that you, sh that you should lead when the shepherd who leads at the front of the herd is worse than the shepherd who leads from the back of the herd. 
Mm. So if the shepherd is out front and saying, okay, let's go this way, and then come on, sheep, follow me, then the sheep fan out behind the shepherd into like a big pizza slice, right? As, you know, okay. And the strongest sheep are going to be in the front. And the weakest sort of most distracted sheep are going to be kind of fanning out in the back. And the shepherd's going to have to like range all around trying to keep the sheep together, stop the whole herd and go all the way back and bring some of them forward, right? But a good shepherd, a smarter shepherd, identifies the strong sheep, goes to the back of the herd, and lets the strong sheep guide the herd. And they're in the back, keeping the edges in and keeping the slowest sheep moving forward. That's the way, that's the best way to, to lead. It's not from the front, hey, let's all go this way. It's from the back and being in constant contact and communication with your strongest sheep, your leaders that are in your, in your organization. Great. And then helping and supporting the weakest or slaughtering, slaughtering the weak. <laughs> I mean, let's be serious, right? If you're running a company, you have to fire people sometimes. And it's not, it's not personal. It's because they're not, they don't want to do the job or it's not a good fit for them or whatever. But sometimes the weakest sheep need to go, you know, not, you know, people aren't sheep, they're human beings. But, you know, if, in this analogy, <laughs> people need to leave the company sometimes. So, Definitely. yeah, it's not, it's not, you know, it's not, that's nothing personal. Actually, the times that I've seen people fired, they were like so relieved afterwards because they were like, oh, yeah, I never wanted to work here anyway. <laughs> you know, I needed to leave six months ago and I never, I just didn't have the guts to leave. So actually, I think it's, I think it's a pretty good thing when, when people are asked to leave if they don't want to be there. For sure, for sure. I see. So today we've gone over everything from uh, the carrot, the stick, not not falling towards character bias, uh, embracing things like you know, reducing your friction for things, and then like your, you know, what you do for your business or your company, helping people find like the 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 ladder of motivation, and the four rungs being physical needs, emotional needs, uh, self determination, and ownership. Or no, social meeting ownership, yep, with, yep. Uh, all that stuff. Amazing. All right, then. So with my last question here, I thought I would ask you a little bit more about uh, society in general, right? So any other like areas of society where you think like the motivations could be realigned, right? Like there's this, there's like a circle between you and I that makes us care about make school, right? And then like we both care about like companies because mm -hmm. like we're in the tech industry. But like if, if you had to think about you mentioned about mayors and how like politics, uh, the leadership there is, there aren't as many strong leaders. Are yeah, there yeah, of yeah. Actually, there is. And actually, this segues into what is going to be one of my future books. Uh, one of my future books that I'm going to write. Um, so you've hit on a really good thing, which is there's a lot of organizations that operate using um, committees. Mm. Committees. Right. There's a lot of universities, nonprofits, universities, um, religions, almost all religions operate committees, kind of nested committees that go up like that. Um, and then there's like a steering committee at the top or a board, which is essentially a committee, committee leadership. This right. is the way a lot of organizations work. Uh, and I think that that is terrible. 
my committees are just like where productivity and achievement and success and motivation go to die. Um, I really don't believe in committees. Um, so uh, instead, uh, I want to write a book. It's called The Ownership Advantage. That's the code name for it. I think that's what it'll be called. But it's the idea of replacing committee-based or committee structures with ownership structures, where you have an area owner, which is similar to like a chairman of a committee, sort of. So it's not totally different, but it's it's categorically different in that you do it in engage with ideas and relate and responsibilities, and even the kind of week to week or month to month schedules are different. So so yeah, so when you replace committees with ownership. I think you go a long way to making an organization more responsive to its stakeholders, uh, whether it's a school to its students, to its faculty, or to a, a business to its you know, shareholders and employees and customers, whatever, responsive to stakeholders. I think you also get people are much more excited and motivated because they get ownership over an area, like they get to actually make decisions. Uh, and I think you preserve uh, democracy, which is, I think, a the reason why people form committee or based organizations is because they want to be, and this is very admirable, they want to create democratic organizations, which is very admirable, and they should make democratic organizations. The, 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 what I'm trying to demonstrate with the ownership model is a form of democratic leadership that is more responsive to all stakeholders. And so I'd like to write a little book. It's just going to be a little one, be a little baby one. I realize all my books are too long. So I'm just gonna write like a hundred page book. It's gonna be so little, big, little baby book. And it'll be great. Cause I'll talk about organizations that are committees and I'll talk about how they fail because they fail because they're not responsive enough to their stakeholders. And then I'll talk about organizations that use ownership and show how they're far more responsive to their stakeholders and that that makes them more successful. And then the second half, half of the book will be like, how do you go from being a committee-based organization to an ownership-based organization? And I'll put in case studies and, and, uh, and some recommendations for how to do that. So, so yeah, so yeah, a lot of organizations, again, we have a complete crisis in leadership in our country, total and complete top to bottom crisis, in my opinion. And, uh, and so um, we need to like really, really um, change the way our organizations are, are run from nonprofits to for-profits to governments to, to everything. We got to do better at being, uh, at, at leadership. The call to leadership is here. Yeah. And then, <laughs> all right. I'll wrap it up here with our, our, our lightning round. So for lightning, awesome. I'll just ask you a couple quick questions. Okay, let's do it. Bam, bam, bam. I'm ready. I'm lightning man. So favorite motivational speaker. Chris Farley. Chris Farley. <laughs> There's a Saturday Night Live sketch. No, I don't know. He's a Saturday Night Live sketch where he's a motivational speaker. I, I gotta say, I, I haven't watched Saturday Night Live. You'll have to Google it. To... <laughs> Definitely. Just type in Chris Farley motivational speaker into YouTube. Mm-hmm. Favorite leader from 20 years ago? 20 years ago was the year 2000. Uh, I guess the year 2000, what was I really getting into then? I don't know. Year 2000, what was the leader 2000? 
you know, I wasn't, I don't think I was really old enough to know. Cause I was like, tw- I was only like 16 years old. I don't think I had really that idea of like who was like leading. It's hard to say, but I guess in retrospect uh, in the year 2000, I don't know. I, I mean, in the year 2000, I think, oh no, that's too early for that. Honestly, I have no idea who was, who was doing anything in the year 2000. I don't know. What was going on? Why people were afraid of the Y2K bug? That was insane. I don't know what was going on. See, I, I can't I, say. Yeah. It's just like a blur. I, it's a total blur. Also, I was 16 years old. What did I care? I don't know. I was just like reading all kinds of stuff. I was reading Noam Chomsky then. That was someone I was reading. And I was very impressed with the interesting ideas that he has about history. He essentially recasts American history uh, and kind of points out that we've been very imperialistic in uh, South America, Latin America, and Asia, various places, and, and especially Latin America and South America. So I was very interested in his take, especially when 9-11 happened. Actually, I was reading his sort of critiques of that, and it was very interesting. So I'd say Noam Chomsky. Definitely not expect to hear that, but let's, we'll take it. Favorite? I was a radical back then. I was a radical. I still am a radical in some ways, but let's do it. And other than Obama, who is your favorite leader today? Yeah, I wouldn't say Obama is a very good leader, but I do think he, you know, he values leadership and and and, exp- and shows leadership. I, I don't. Unfortunately, Obama's a what's called a neoliberal, which I fundamentally disagree with that perspective. So I I can't really throw my total support behind him. Um, but I do um, admire his, his leadership. Um, I would say the greatest leader today is probably Nina Turner. Nina Turner, who's running for, she's, she's, running, for, um, she's running for Congress in Ohio. And she was, a, she was a major, she was the co-chair of Bernie's campaign for president. So she was essentially second in command to Bernie. And now she's running for Congress in Ohio. And she is amazing. I mean, she, you got to listen to the way she talks and like what she says. It is like powerful, super powerful stuff. Uh, her mom was a, was a preacher. So she just, she just, she can channel her mom, I think. And just, oh man, she preaches. It's awesome. So, uh, so yeah, I really, Bernie, Bernie is also very good, but Bernie, I would say Bernie, but I'm kind of looking forward to the future. And I see Nina Turner as kind of the future of the Bernie movement of the, the social, the social democracy movement in America. So very cool. Yeah. She's cool, man. Getting all political here at the end. I guess when you talk about leadership, our minds often go to politics. I also like the Salesforce CEO. He does, I think some really cool things. Um, I forget his name right off the top of my head, but he does some really interesting things about really challenging the, the like challenging businesses to really be better and to really like, and to not just be kind of, again, like a neoliberal idea of like businesses only exist to maximize shareholder profits. He challenges that. He's like, no, that's not true. And he goes on like TV and says, that's not true. And I just love that. So I, I, I like him. Um, yeah. I also like the, um, the, 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 the gentleman who used to work at Facebook. Um, I can't remember his name either, but he, he now runs Clover Health and He's a billionaire guy and he criticizes Facebook, but he was like, he's been made a billionaire by, by working at Facebook early on. Mm. Anyways, his name's like Prajatel, I think something like that. 
Um, anyways, but you can look up Clover Health, the CEO. Yeah. He's awesome too, because he also really criticizes technology, social media, Facebook, um, and he criticizes a lot of good, he does a lot of good criticism of business as well. Doesn't really get on to fully understand like a kind of social democracy, but uh, if you go to ninaturner.com, you'll, you'll understand social democracy a little better. Understand the movement. That's right. That's right. We want to make an economy that works for everybody, not an economy that works for very few people. It exploits everyone else. That's the goal. Definitely. Uh, and I hear what you're saying there with Mark Benioff, the Salesforce CEO. Yeah, yeah, Mark Benioff. Yeah, he's 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 pretty cool. He still doesn't say the really right things, which would be like, we need universal health care. We need, you know, we need a universal. You know, he doesn't say that stuff. He just says, oh, you know, businesses shouldn't be entirely rapacious. It's like, okay, great. You know, give them a Nobel Prize or something for just saying we shouldn't be horribly mon monstrous. Um, but but he goes he goes in that direction, which is good. And I like his his attitude, which I think is a really good attitude and a, like a leadership attitude where he goes first, where other people are kind of scared to go. And he kind of creates space for like a new idea. Um, whereas other people, I think, just kind of, kind of just are like, oh, what are other people doing? Oh, we're just going to do that. It's like, that's not good. Right. That's not really leadership. That's called isomorphic mimetis, mimetic isomorphism. Mimetic isomorphism is not leadership. That's just copying what other people do. So, yeah. And then my last slightly round question, who is your favorite leader who you disagree with? Oh, well, Obama. I think that's a great example. Yeah, because I, I really fundamentally disagree with, with his politics, uh, uh, which is what's called neoliberalism, which is the belief that, you know, kind of unfettered global capitalism is like the best or, or lightly regulated, uh, but largely unfettered global capitalism is the best way forward for people and for the world. Uh, I completely disagree with that. Uh, I, I'm much more, I'm not a socialist. I would never advocate like a centrally planned economy or something because that has been proven not to work. But I believe that we should have, uh, capitalism should become a flywheel. To put it in the way a, a car works, there's a flywheel, which is capitalism. And you apply a clutch to that flywheel to take some of the energy off that flywheel to raise the dignity of all human life so that that's essentially what social democracy is you kind of apply this clutch and you don't want to apply a clutch so hard that it stops the flywheel that's idiotic but you also don't want to have no clutch and just let the engine rev as hot as you possibly can and, you know you want to just apply this clutch and we have we have already proven things you know universal health care universal child care universal college level education you know these kind of things are clearly uh, the right things to have in society and we can afford them and, uh, and we should, we should build those things. So, whereas Obama didn't do that, he had the opportunity to do universal healthcare, didn't get it across the finish line. You know, we now have a child, we now have a huge debt crisis of student debt. Well, when did those people go to college? They were going to college during Obama's time, right? 10 years ago. So, you know, he kind of, you know, and he kept us in Afghanistan. He kept us in Iraq both completely useless wars that we should have just gotten out of, you know, a more than a decade ago. Um, 
I mean, we should have never gotten into them in the first place. But, you know, anyways, all these things uh, make it so that I really can't agree with Obama fundamentally on policy. But I really admire his leadership. I really think, you know, he was a cool hand at the tiller. You know, I think he has the right values. I think he cares about honesty and justice and democracy and family. And I mean, I, I really admire him, but I really think his politics are backwards. So. What a fiery episode we have today. <laughs> Don't cancel me. <laughs> yeah. Well, I guess, I don't know. I was raised in a family where it was okay to talk about politics over the dinner table. So I, I always feel like it's okay to, to kind of share people's ideas. And I'm, I'm open to other people's ideas. I always have been. That's why I've changed my ideas so much over time. I was a socialist, hardcore socialist back in college. I became a hardcore libertarian, right-wing constitutionalist after college. I've been all over the whole spectrum and it's because I'm excited to hear other people's perspectives. So this is just where I'm at now. Yeah, no, I appreciate it. Uh, I'm going to be, I'm going to be interviewing again, hopefully for the next oh, book. Book three. Okay. Uh, and with that, bro, <laughs> thank you again so much for coming on. This right. Like a really, I, I really, my eye opening uh, episode. Okay. Thanks Zane. Yeah. I hope, uh, hope it's fun. I appreciate being able to chat with you and kind of, I feel like this is like therapy for me. You know, I'm like getting things off my chest. You're a good listener. <laughs> okay, my friends, there you have it. It is Adam Browse once more on the podcast. And I hope you enjoyed it. Listen, I am going to walk away from this episode with a lot of my thoughts changed, a lot of my views challenged on leadership. I honestly do not agree with everything Browse has to say. That being said, I challenge you to go out and try some of the things we mentioned in this episode. Try and figure out where is your team on the ladder of leadership or the ladder of motivation. Try and figure out, hey, where can I step back and stop white knuckling myself into doing things that really I'm not motivated to do and instead design myself, give myself more grout to go accomplish those things. Having said that, if you enjoyed the podcast, I'd love to hear your thoughts. If you didn't love the podcast, I'd love to hear those thoughts even more. Please send your feedback to me at zanr7989 at gmail.com. And let us know uh, what you think and what you'd love to see more in the future so we can keep on sending out great episodes and great content to you. With that, I hope you guys all take away a bunch of leadership. Go lead, go motivate, and I wish you all the best. This has been Zane Raza. Take care, everyone.